Hi. <clears throat> good morning, ladies. It's really good to be with you all. Did you guys have a great snow day last week? It's always so pretty. I don't like going out in it, but it's always so pretty with the snow. Anyway, um, I know people are still wandering in. I have a couple announcements. Well, one announcement. But I probably ought to wait till more come in because if you wrote a check, uh, you know, when we took up the offering for Northam, wrote a check, would you stop by at the desk in the other room to pick up your receipt? Uh, Northside uh, wants to give you a receipt for that, for your, for your check, okay? So Marsha has those in that room that's right behind us at that desk, okay? Awesome. And then, I don't see Teresa here, but I just wanted to let you know, um, she just kind of wanted, she hasn't been here since before Christmas, and there's been a number of you that have asked about her. And so she asks that I share with you. She's she's has I'm just gonna say this. She has her plate full. Um, actually, she's coming in now. Sorry, I'm talking about you, girl. But um, so at the beginning of the year, she had to take her dad to the hospital for a back issue, and then she had her grandbaby, which you guys knew about. And then right after that, her mom uh, got diagnosed with. Um, cancer. So will you pray for her? Uh, she's got a lot on her plate. So anyway, that's the, that's why she's she's not up here, but we're hoping that she'll be here next week, right? Is that the plan? Uh, Laura's next week? Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll get it figured out. Anyway, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <sighs> Father God, I ask you in the name of Jesus to give us clarity and understanding of your word. May you speak what you want to say through me, and may we all have ears to hear and hearts to understand. We need your help today to listen to you, to hear your voice, and to make your word a very part of our being, and so we can live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are in John chapter 16. Ladies, haven't we learned a lot from this gospel? Oh, it's just, I am. We have witnessed over these chapters the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We've been able to witness that and how God the Son carried out his ministry to humanity. The ministry is coming to a climax in just a few short hours. Remember, this is the night before Jesus is arrested, and, um, and then he goes to the cross. And so this is a continuation of, uh, of what we've read already, chapters 13 through 17. So um, we'll be doing 17 next week before he goes to the cross. And he's even letting us in to hear his prayers next week, which is just, just beautiful. He is completing his in-person ministry and at the same time getting ready to pass the baton to his disciples and ultimately to you and to me. Jesus is going at it once again to let them know 
that he knows what they are feeling and thinking about, but he, all, he will already be at their tomorrows because he's sending the Holy Spirit. But to what end? Why does Jesus have to leave? And what are his expectations of the disciples after he leaves? He wants them to know their purpose, and us as well, to have courage and hope as they fulfill their purpose, and in turn, he wants us to fulfill our purpose too. So remember in John 14, 12, it said, Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. As Ephesians 2:10 confirms, Jesus is going back to the Father, but he is leaving us here to do the work that he ordained for us before the foundation of the world. Remember, we talked about that. And chapter 16 is all about a particular work Jesus is calling us to do. Before we embark on chapter 16, let's pick up at the very end of chapter 15. So if you want to get your scriptures out. And um, remember, there's no chapter divisions in Jesus' teaching. This is all kind of flows together. So in uh, starting with verse 26 and 15, it says, When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus is speaking of the ministry of witnessing, of testifying. We have a tendency to think that witnessing for Christ is the job of ministers or church leaders and those that have the gift of evangelism. But that is not true. As part of his church, Christ calls us to testify to hope that is within us and his saving grace offered to anyone who would receive. And we need help to do that, don't we, ladies? We talked in John 14 how the Holy Spirit is called the parakletos in the Greek, and it literally signifies called to or called beside another to aid him. He said in, in 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus puts an adjective in front of helper that gives us further understanding of this helper. And what is that adjective? It's another. He will give us another helper. The Father will send another helper, intercessor, counselor, advocate, and comforter. It's interesting because there are two Greek words that are translated another. One word is, and I know I won't say this right, but heteros, which is another of a different kind. The other word is allos, which is another of the same kind. The word used here is allos, another of the same kind of helper. So what does that imply? Same kind as what? With his departure, Jesus is giving his disciples and us another, just like himself and the Father. He is referring to another of the Godhead. So Jesus, the God-man, is going away. He will send the Spirit, who will be a helper of the same kind, God himself. Jesus is saying that we will receive another of the same kind, another of the same kind of Jesus, of God, same in essence, but he will serve a different role. Our English words don't do translations justice because the meaning is fuller and wider than helper, counselor, advocate, although it encompasses them all. There are five verses using the term parakletos in the New Testament, and four of those are used for the Holy Spirit right here in the book of John. 
And one is used in 1 John 2, 1, calling Jesus our paraclete, our advocate, pleading our cause before the Father. We need the Holy Spirit to carry on Jesus' mission here on earth. Jesus is preparing them and us for ministry, his ministry. So what was the ministry of Jesus? Let's review what Jesus said in Luke 4, 18 and 19 in how he was fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So, but Jesus' mission has become our mission. His ministry is our ministry. Mark 16, 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The word gospel means the good tidings of the kingdom of God and of salvation through Christ to be received by faith on the basis of his atoning death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. The Holy Spirit was destined to take the place of Christ with the apostles after his ascension to the Father, to lead them to a deeper knowledge of the gospel truth, and to give them divine strength needed to enable them to undergo trials and persecutions on behalf of the divine kingdom. Likewise, we are to preach the gospel to all of creation, as long as we are still here on this earth. But he is telling them, not only will the Holy Spirit give you comfort, help, wisdom, and peace, but he will testify or bear witness, and we will partner with him by empowering us to testify of Jesus and his offer of salvation. Isn't that awesome? So let's dive into chapter 16 with this as the backdrop, starting with verse 1. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Jesus is planting his words in the disciples' heart and mind, so when they face opposition that will come from being his witnesses, they won't stumble and give up. When we get caught up in our emotions, we can fall because we take our eyes off the truth. Jesus knows they are full of sorrow, yet he says it's going to get worse. When you are on mission for me, you will have happened to what happened to me happen to you. They are to count the cost. Romans 12:1 says, "Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice." acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know how we sometimes ask God why something is happening in our lives? Well, last time when we talked about chapter 15, Laura talked about the pruning the Lord does. He does it to bear fruit in our conduct, in our character, and in converts. Making disciples is difficult work, and it comes with opposition. First, he says that we will be kicked out of the synagogues, the very center of the Jewish life. Or in other words, we're going to have a conflict with the world and, and the religious system. In Mark 13, 9, Jesus says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Jesus doesn't want the disciples to be surprised 
but he wants them and us to count the cost. Not only will they go through such hardships, but some will be killed by people, people who even think that they are serving God in doing so. The Apostle Paul is our prime example of this. He was known as Saul before his conversion to Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. He was persecuting and killing Christians because he thought he was doing the right thing for God. If it was not for the Lord stopping him in his tracks, he would have continued and Saul would have died in his sins. The world does this because they don't know the Father or Jesus. We were on this way before we came to a saving belief in Jesus. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That comes from 1 Corinthians 2.14. When you follow Jesus, you are set apart from the world and therefore are in direct conflict with the world's beliefs, behavior, and boasting. First, when we follow Jesus, we are set apart in belief. Because we believe that there is one true God, and Jesus is the only way to that one true God, we testify to Jesus when we stand on that truth. The world thinks that there are many paths to God, or even there is no God. We believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only true God, and we place our faith in that truth. The world says, live according to your... Jesus is essentially, as Romans 12 stumble, they didn't believe me either. But instead, as Romans 12:2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Second, when you follow Jesus, we are set apart in our behavior. We are in conflict with the world because God calls the behavior of the world sin. As we learned in John 1, Jesus is the light and shines in the darkness, exposing sin. And the world does not want to be exposed. Jesus wants us to live out our belief in him and how we act. As we are on mission, we are to love one another and be unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we are his body and he is our head. Jesus said when we love each other in his body, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. We are to love extravagantly while preaching the truth. The world wants us to behave like it behaves. The world says, if you don't agree with me, you're worthless, and I don't want anything to do with you. The world yells and screams and divides and even kills. Followers of Christ should unite together and choose not to take vengeance, but depend on the one in whom we believe to sustain us and help us to continue on in mission. Jesus is saying, don't stumble. They don't like my behavior either. Philippians 1, 27 and 28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. And thirdly, when we follow Jesus, we are set apart in our boasting. We boast in the gratitude to our Savior in saving us from the domain of darkness and ushering us into his marvelous light. 
We boast Christ crucified, while the world boasts me, me, me. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We are in conflict with the world because Jesus calls us to be humble like him and glorify the Father, whereas the world says, be proud and glorify yourself. Jesus is telling us, don't stumble by boasting in yourself. Boast in the cross and in your heavenly Father. And you are therefore carrying out your mission to testify of me. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So, are you counting the cost? Are you willing to look like Jesus in your beliefs, your behavior, and your boasting? Know that if you do, you will be received with opposition. Honestly, in doing this, I had to ask myself, What kind of opposition have I received for my faith lately? Perhaps I need to put myself out more and be bolder. That is certainly my prayer. Going on with verse 4, it says, But I have told you these things, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, Where are you going? Yet, because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is telling the disciples the truth in love. Jesus' heart hurts for them because his friends are in pain, but he knows he must tell them the truth because it is for their own good. And not only that, when they experience the things that Jesus is telling them they will, they will remember that he told them. It will increase their trust, knowing that the Lord has always had their best in mind versus settling for feeling better. Jesus offers hope and perspective once again. Jesus had to go away for the helper or the counselor, the parakletos, to come. Why? First of all, he has to go away by dying on the cross in order for salvation to be available to any who would believe. Secondly, only when Jesus goes away can his ministry be expanded to reach the whole world by placing his witness in every believer and multiplying his effect as more and more come to Christ. Finally, Jesus gives us his resurrection power and help in each and every believer to have the courage and ability to take his message to the ends of the earth. The only way believers in Christ can carry out Jesus' ministry is in the power of the Holy Spirit, living in each permanently. Jesus knew that he would be leaving, and he also knew that the disciples would have trouble following his ways without help. So you can see why it is so important that Jesus goes away, and it is for our sake that he did so. So I want to just talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit and how he interacts with believers in special ways. Are we up? Oh, I can see that. Cool. I did it right. <laughs> I'm not very techy. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. Um, she's way more techy than I am. So the first thing is he baptizes us. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And 
that is how we come into relationship with Jesus Christ and with the Father. He then also regenerates. He is our permanent indwelling. And I'm not going to read all these verses because, um, because that would take too long. So we know that he permanently indwells in us, as we learned in John 14 specifically. We are also his temple, according to 1 Corinthians 6.19. Think about that for a second. You and I house the Holy Spirit. We're his temple. Hmm. He binds us to the Son and to the Father. He is our seal, our down payment, and our first fruits. And when he seals us, it is a permanent seal. And he's guarding us for that day when we will be united with Christ in eternity. He is our guard of the treasure that's in us. He is our intercessor in prayer. He calls us to ministry. And then he does a big work. This is big, which is he sanctifies us. He sets us apart to God. He makes us more like Christ in our daily lives. He produces his fruit of godliness in our walk with him. He is the channel of divine revelation to us, as we have read. He illuminates as we read and study scripture. Together, the word and the spirit are a powerful team in the believer's walk. We'll talk a little bit more about that. He empowers the believer beyond our own capacity for a specific task, situation, to proclaim God's word powerfully and to consistently live according to God's will. And then he gives us spiritual gifts to build up the body to carry out Christ's mission. Now, the believer has a relationship to the Holy Spirit as well. It's not just one way. The believer, in relationship with him, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Spirit. That is actually a command. That that is how we are to be empowered every day of our lives. That's a surrendering process that we, ha- we need to go through. We are to walk by the Spirit. The Greek in that word means to keep in step with the Spirit, to stroll with Him as you're going about your ministry. We are to pray in the Spirit and to not just do it in our own effort. We also are not to grieve Him. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can only grieve a person. So we can make him sad. And we are not to quench him, quench the power that is within us. Most of the time, that's because of sin for those two things. So can you see how the Holy Spirit is such a gift and how we need him? Now, that's just not even an expansive gift or expansive list of everything about the Holy Spirit. But that's just kind of like a highlight to get our minds thinking about the gift that we've been given. The Holy Spirit also has a special mission and interaction with unbelievers, too. Let's move on to verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus is speaking of the world of unbelievers and how the Holy Spirit treats them. He's operating in a legal sense. The word convict is a translation of the Greek word elenko, which means to convince someone of the truth, to reprove, to accuse, to refute, or cross-examine a witness. The Holy Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney 
who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, and convinces people that they need a Savior. He has only one goal. He serves as an advocate or attorney, as it may be, to reveal sin, righteousness, and judgment. In addition to providing wise counsel, attorneys also provide evidence used to convict criminals. In similar fashion, the Holy Spirit will prove sin, righteousness, and judgment of the world. He convicts people that there will be a judgment and that perfect righteousness is the standard. He convicts that we convicts us that we fall short of that standard because of sin and therefore we need a savior. Then he testifies to that savior. So it's two sides of the of the same coin. Isn't that cool? Think about when you're witnessing to others. The Holy Spirit is going before you. It's his job to prick the hearts of those listening of you testifying to the gospel. It's not your job to convert them. It's his. We praise the Lord for the conviction of sin, for without it there would be no salvation. No one is saved apart from the Spirit's convicting and regenerating regenerating work in the heart. The Bible teaches that all people are by nature rebels against God and hostile to Jesus Christ. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, in John 6.44. Part of that draw to Jesus is the conviction of sin. Moving on to verse 12 and following, it says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. What Jesus is saying here is the disciples can't handle it all at once. But the Holy Spirit knows when they can absorb truth. That's the same for us. He knows exactly when to drop the truth into our spirit so we can absorb it to bear fruit in our lives. Then we can testify to the Son's work in our lives so others can hear and believe for themselves. Because the Holy Spirit surrenders in his relationship to the Father and the Son, He, too, teaches us how to surrender to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we surrender, we are able to receive from God what we need to walk out his ministry, therefore bringing Jesus and the Father glory. The disciples did not yet know the power that would be at work in them after Pentecost. The Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of the power of God that lives in us when he writes of his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority. That's from Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. The Greek word translated great, which is his incomparably great power, So great is megathos, which means strong or great, and it appears only here in the New Testament. Apparently, this word wasn't sufficient for Paul to express God's great power, so he adds the word incomparably 
or in Greek, hyperbalon, related to a verb that lit literally means to throw beyond the usual mark or to excel or surpass. So the full idea of the expression hyperbalon, mega, megathos, I have no idea if I'm saying that right, is that of the power beyond measure, a superabounding or surpassing power, power that is more than enough. What Paul is really telling us is that God's power exceeds or surpasses everything. It is unimaginable power. God spoke the universe into existence, raised Jesus from the dead, and placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, as we see further in Ephesians verse 22, 122. He has power far beyond any possibility of being measured. Paul simply could not say enough about the greatness and majesty of God, and he had difficulty finding the words to express his thoughts about the power of God because Paul had experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Ladies, this is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit is actually God in us. He shares all the divine attributes with the Father and the Son. He, we have the resurrected power of Jesus Christ in us. So how do we learn to rely on the power of God? We must learn to cease trusting in our frail efforts and hand our resources over to the one who can do anything. God's power is perfected in our weakness, according to 2 Corinthians 12.9. Remember when the disciples were at their wits' end trying to figure out how to feed the 5,000? It was not until they brought that small amount of food from the boy to Christ that anyone was fed. They surrendered their own efforts to him. Additionally, we have power in and through the word of God, in which our, in our armor in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Speak it out loud to yourself and others. And finally, and most importantly, practice it. And the Holy Spirit will take the truth and cause the word to accomplish in power what the Lord sent it to do. Verses 16 through 20, 22 tells us um, that we see the disciples having a conversation with the, themselves and about their confusion. Jesus knew they were confused and knew the future grief they would have, and it would be debilitating for a, li for a little bit, contrasting with the world's joy that they got rid of Jesus. He helps them with an, an analogy of childbirth. I find this ironic because he's telling this comparison to a group of guys. Just saying. I just thought it was funny. They can understand the pain to a point, a small point, <laughs> but they know there is a prize after labor is over, a baby, new life. And just like a mama's joy they will rejoice because joy will come to the disciples because they will see him again after the resurrection. But no one can take their joy away because the resurrection would change things permanently, bringing a joy that cannot be removed by the world's assaults. What about us? Every believer down through the ages has this joy because Jesus Christ is alive and we are alive because the Holy Spirit permanently binds us to him when we receive him. But Jesus expands on that joy. He wants us to know joy, complete joy. 
23 says, In that day you will not ask me anything. Truly I tell you, anything you ask in the Father, anything that you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. In that day, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is going past the resurrection, past Jesus' ascension, back to the Father, to Pentecost. When sorrow is turned to joy because the Holy Spirit is given permanently to believers. It is at that point that Jesus says they will be full-blown witnesses. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In addition to that, he's saying that prayer is a vital part of relying on the power of God. Jesus has told him, told them and us numerous times to ask him anything in his name, right? We've, we've seen this over and over in these several chapters. We are asking for anything in his name, his nature, or his authority, and it will be done for you. Remember we talked about WWJP, what would Jesus pray? It was after a prayer meeting in the early church that the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, Acts 4.31. It was during a prayer meeting that Peter was miraculously released from prison in Acts 12. I find it interesting, I think we forget when we turn to the book of Acts, that it wasn't so long ago that Peter denied Christ three times, right? And he was full of sorrow. Look at what the Holy Spirit did to Peter. He preached the first sermon in the book of Acts with boldness, and many came to know Christ. When we are witnessing for Christ, he will answer our prayers to empower us to do the work he has placed before us. And there is such joy in that. Additionally, he takes great joy in answering prayers that my friend calls audacious, because when he answers it, it will glorify him and bring us true joy. Have you ever experienced God answering a prayer immeasurably more than you could imagine or think? Hmm. Have you ever been giddy over how God answered a prayer? That's complete joy. My older brother had a massive stroke in July of 2020 at the age of 58. Many people prayed for George. There were many prayer chains going out. Even people who never prayed before started prayer chains in my family. God was at work in so many ways, but I will never forget one experience in particular. He was eight weeks in the hospital on the rehab floor in Connecticut. His girlfriend called me one day and said, I don't think George will ever walk again because his whole right side is paralyzed and it hasn't moved. He's not making any progress. I said to her, let's ask God. And I will also ask a group of women that love to pray. Hmm. It's, so I sent out a request. The next day... Okay, did you hear me? The next day, Patty called me and asked if I was sitting down. I had just finished getting gas, so I was sitting down in my car. <laughs> she proceeded to tell me that she was watching George and PT behind the plexiglass. Remember, this is July of 2020, or August of 2020. 
Lisa, his physical therapist, I even knew her name, even though I never met her, had her hand under George's leg and asked George to lift his leg like she had done every day for weeks. All the nurses and therapists, excuse me, so she felt him. So she pulled her hand away and said, George, lift your leg, and it went six feet up. All the nurses and therapists and Patty were cheering and crying. Now I'm crying in my car at the gas station, and I'm filled with joy because I knew God had done it. Not only that, I had the privilege of telling Patty that God loves her and George, and that's why he did it. Now I know this is a big answer to prayer, but the Father answers big prayers every day because we belong to him, and he loves us through his Son, and he delights in answering The book of Acts is filled with miracles that God gave many of the followers of Christ in order to point those those to his saving grace. And he's still working. And while he's doing that, we get to participate and see God at work bringing us bountiful joy. So I'm going to ask you, are you willing to ask the Father anything in Jesus' name? How about an audacious prayer that only God can answer? Are you testifying to his work in you and in others so people can see him loving them and therefore responding to his grace? I think one of the kindest things that we can do as believers is to say to somebody, I pray, I'm praying for you, especially for an unbeliever. Really? You don't even know me and you're going to pray for me? I think that's really one of the greatest ways that God can do can, can minister We also have complete joy because of the full supply of heavenly blessings given to the obedient in his commands, as we saw in John 15, 11, and to carry out the work he has called us to do. We will have joy when we obey our commission to share with our world the gospel and the work of making his disciples. Let's move on to 25. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples would actually understand the ministry of Christ better than they had when they were with him. We can see this carried out uh, by the Spirit-inspired writings of all four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. The book of Acts depicts how the early church kicked off Christ's ministry to the world with clarity and purpose and power. They would experience the love of the Father like Jesus experienced because of their faith in the Son. What joy that must have brought to their their hearts, and it should bring it to ours. In verse 29, he says, His disciples said, Look, now you are speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. 
I kind of got a chuckle out of that. Like he's been saying this all along, right? I came from God. I came from the Father. And now all of a sudden they're saying, now we know that you really came from God. (laughs) They thought they were getting it now. They confessed their faith in Jesus' heavenly origin, which Jesus taught from the very beginning of his ministry. But Jesus responds to them, Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus is confronting their overconfidence and self-assurance. He predicted they would all scatter in fear, and we read in the Gospels that they did, and they would leave him alone to be arrested, crucified without their support. But the Father will be with him, and Jesus knows that he won't be alone. And that should be a comfort to us, because even when you feel alone, and maybe you physically are alone, God never leaves you alone. He is right there with you. So take comfort in that as well. He said in verse, uh, at the end of the chapter, I have told you these things so, in, so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. We can have victory because of peace, hope, and power. Because we have peace with the Father through Christ, we now have the peace of Christ. As we learned in chapter 15, Abiding is key to receiving continual peace as we navigate this world, carrying out the works that we are to do. Suffering or tribulation will come because we are set apart from the world and we will be persecuted because of it, especially because of our testimony for Christ. Jesus is commanding us to be courageous. We are to hold fast our faith even unto death against the power of our foes, our temptations, and our persecutions that come our way. So why are we able to maintain our cause for Christ? Hope. He has made the world's opposition null and void. While the world continues to attack Christ's people, we can live victoriously in attitude and action because we know that Christ has sealed the victory for us, and one day we will live in peace and joy in eternity future. And that is what should compel us to persevere in sharing the kingdom of God to a lost and dying world. We want them to go with us. The resurrection of Jesus certainly demonstrates the great power of God and is the great hope of all believers. Because he lives, we will live, John 14, 19 tells us. Peter said, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. No matter what happens in this world, we have the power of God and Jesus' resurrection in us. The Lord will grant us an inheritance and sustain us through eternity. Going on in that 1 Peter 1, verse 5, it says, We, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you doing his work while you're ready? No matter how weak or ill-equipped we may feel at times, we can rely on the power of God. We have the assurance that God is able to do immeasurably more 
than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, according to Ephesians 3.20. We have confidence that ultimately God will accomplish his good in our lives. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8.28. And additionally, the Holy Spirit has his work that he is doing to complete. And what is that work? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. So, we are able to complete God's mission for us ordained before the foundation of the world. Ladies, if we belong to the Father through his Son, we have the very spirit of the living God at work in us to help us complete the works designed for us. So here is our challenge. Romans 10, 14 through 15 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, who, in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I really want good-looking feet. Matthew 28, 18 says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, will you partner with the Holy Spirit this week to tell someone about Jesus Christ and his saving grace? I'm challenging myself with that as well. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name above all, Jesus Christ, and in the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And we are asking you for your help. Thank you for the gospel and how you have changed our lives because of what you did for us, for laying down your life, and, and the, how we are able to be resurrected with you. Fill us with your love and power to share the good news of the gospel to any who you put in our path. Remind us, Holy Spirit, of Jesus, his sacrifice, and his words to teach us what we need in order to carry out your mission here on this side of eternity. Make us bold in the power of your name. And Lord, we ask for anyone here today who wants to know you in a personal way, that you would hear them right now and receive their prayer asking you right now for, for, to forgive their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness and that they are able to begin a new relationship with you as a new creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.